0: Software Engineering Radio Episode 64 Architecture and Business with Luke Homan. Welcome listeners to a new episode of Software Engineering Radio. Um, in this episode, we are going to talk to Luke Hohmann about, or actually, how do you pronounce this in correct? Uh, Hohmann. okay. Homan. Because it's also more or less, a, you could pronounce it German. Well, so. I, I, I'm told my ancestry is German. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we're going to talk about the, let's say, the non-technical aspects of software architecture, how to build products, how to integrate technical architectural stuff with business concerns, um, before we do that, I briefly want to thank um, the organizers of the OOP 2007 conference because they've been giving us a room where we can actually record this stuff. So thanks, Wolfgang Reuter from Datacom. Very good. So we can do a professionally sounding recording here. And uh, so before we get into the topic, Luke, I think it's, it's a good time to introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, what your kind of background is and uh, why you're here today. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone.
1: Um, well, my background is kind of interesting. I uh, started working at EDS, uh, the big uh, uh, systems integrator, and I spent 10 years at EDS. And I uh, my first job was pulling cable underneath raised floor. Mm-hmm. So no programming, <laughs> just running around and cabling. And then over time, I did a variety of things for EDS, uh, programming and management. And I eventually became a vice president of engineering at a subsidiary, and I moved up the ranks, if you will, in management to try and build better uh, products for people. And then I joined a company called Object Space, uh, which was a object-oriented uh, training and consulting firm in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of fun people have come out of Object Space. Graham Glass, uh, Craig Larman worked mm-hmm. at Object Space. Yeah. So lots of people worked at Object Space. Creative place. create A very creative place. I ran the uh, training division and mm-hmm. taught lots of C++ and Smalltalk and OOP and OA and D. And then from there, I did some more products. I moved to Silicon Valley, where uh, many products are created. So I started moving more and more into products, and I started becoming uh, just increasingly convinced that uh, the business issues of a product company and software are deeply intertwined with the technical issues and the architectural issues. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, this notion that you can kind of separate the architecture and separate the technical concerns um, became uh, increasingly misleading to me and, mm-hmm. and not accurate uh, to my experience. So I did some products um, and I uh, did a variety of things and eventually I decided to become a consultant mm-hmm. to see if I could move the industry forward by helping uh, developers both talk and work with the, with the product team and also by helping the product people understand technical concerns, trying to bridge that gap that it naturally exists. But, but if, it, if the gap is too big, you get problems, and if the gap is too small, you get problems. So yeah. there's, a, there's a reason that there's a gap but we want to have an ability to work with the other
0: uh, team if you will yeah so uh, then one of maybe the first important distinctions or or statements is that we're specifically talking about about product development and not necessarily about the typical you know it project
1: that's correct and um in fact my uh, my good friend martin fowler uh my book is uh, i enjoy being in his series yeah but i remember when martin and i were talking about it and I, and martin said i'd like to Publish your book, and I said, "Well, you know, it's a product-centric book, and yep. and it doesn't meet every kind of development, uh, especially mm-hmm. the, the the vast and very important part of IT." And Martin uh, read the book, and he said, "No, I think it. I think it's really important for IT people to also understand." that the work that they do in IT does need to support the business it may not
0: be as direct as a yeah. product
1: but but they still have a role in supporting the business and i think martin's right
0: yeah and and also i think it is sometimes a good a good idea to to view a project as delivering products that's right so that gives you a different perspective on you know like release management and these kinds of things
1: that's right that's right and and martin said the same thing he's like look you know it, it, you know the the same disciplines and the same activities of putting version numbers Uh, for a product are just as important for putting version numbers in IT because you have to know what you've given... And also the whole notion of customers, right? IT, yes. cus- IP people have customers, too. So there are a very small number of things that I talk about that don't quite relate to the IT side. Yep. Um, but most of the things that I talk about do. And most yep. of the things I care about, the IT people care about, too.
0: Okay, so then let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the basis for all that is obviously software architecture. Right. Um, and we've had discussions about technical aspects of software architecture all over the place. So we're not going to repeat that in, in very much detail. But um, so you said that you can't easily distinguish the technical software architecture from like the product development, product roadmap, product features. So can you give us a little bit of an overview why this why this goes together and how? Where, you know where are the join points?
1: Yeah. So the easiest place to find the join points is to look at the way a company makes money, and what you find is as you examine the ways companies make money, you find that the architectures of the technical team to support the way the company makes money become very different. I'll give you a concrete example. Let's say that you're an enterprise software and you are going to license your software on an annual license. This is a very common choice and it's a very good choice and it makes sense. The architecture for managing that license is very different from a company who says, well, I'm going to license my software using concurrent users or Mm -hmm. named users. Because in one architecture, you're tracking time. In a different architecture, you're tracking logins and user IDs. And let's further distinguish it. Let's say that the company was uh, managing transactions. And they said, our software processes cell phone calls. And every time you make a cell phone call, we're going to look at the attributes of the call and then create a billing system that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, again a completely different technical architecture mm-hmm. to support the business choice of how do I want to make money in my market and and we have lots and lots of books that talk about, you know, pipelines and, and Mary Shaw's book and Martin Fowler's book. And these are all really important things that we need. Grady Booch's cataloging architecture. Yeah, that's cool. Which is really good stuff. But what I think we're still missing and what we're trying to create our own catalog and share uh, through the book and through other mechanisms is when your business is making money a certain way, here's a set of natural requirements that go to your architecture. Like if I'm transactions I have to know the life cycle of the transaction. Mm-hmm. I have to have identifiers. I have to have ways to audit them and and understand what the transaction processing life cycle is again, very, very different from someone who's looking at say named users or concurrent users or accounting yep. CPUs like a database does yep th-
0: th- These are all very important distinctions so uh, just to 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 clarify or to to. Make sure people know that the book we're talking about is called Beyond Software Architecture. Yes, this Beyond is Architecture. B- software? Beyond Software, software architecture. architecture. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so that's the, the context in which we start this discussion here. Yes. And we'll put the URL, obviously, or the link to the Amazon page into the show notes. Um, okay, can you give us a little bit of a, like a, a product development primer? So what what happens if you develop a product? What are the most important steps in doing that? Maybe also in contrast to typical IT projects?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, in in most projects, there's there's a great degree of commonality, right? You have some idea of something you want to do, and then you have some sequence of transformational steps to produce working software. So independent of whether it's product uh, development or IT, you can distinguish... Uh, traditional software responses to that by the different methods we use, like the Berry-Bame spiral, or the waterfall, or Scrum, or Agile. So it's really a a question of how am I transforming these ideas into into some kind of working software, where product um, management uh, differs, and there's many dimensions in which it differs from, say, traditional IT, is that the product management function is trying to determine value in such a way that you can charge for it. Whereas mm-hmm. in the IT, you're still delivering software that has value, but you're not gonna price it, you're not gonna yeah. sell it, you're not gonna distribute it. You basically pay for the development time. They pay for the development time. And so, so. but the, the transformational sequence to me is the same. It's the, what you do when the software is done that makes all the difference uh, in terms of IT, you install it, you train it, you use it. And products, you install it, you have to sell it, you have to put it through channels. Mm-hmm. Um, you might offer it directly over the internet. You might have a direct sales force. All of
0: those complexities make uh, products a little different from just IT. One of the especially important things when developing a product is that you can't update it easily. You have to have a, like a roadmap. You have to well, have well-defined versions. You can not just, well, maybe today with the internet is different so you can easily, you know, put a patch into what you already have, but there needs to be a more explicit plan of the different releases and versions you have. So I think this is also maybe a difference.
1: Yeah, so you touched on actually two points. One is the notion of a roadmap, and the other is the notion of how do I support and service my customers in the field. Let's take the roadmap first. So one of the things that... um, we think is a dangerous thing is when product marketing people and engineering people simply just say, I'm going to have this release on this date with these features. That's what we call a release train. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't provide very much information to the company or the engineers in the sense of, well, why is this release important? Why do people care to acquire this release? Why does my customer want to install it? Yeah. Um, and more importantly, uh, software has a uh, natural opportunities to be installed. And what I mean by that is that every market is governed by a set of events and rhythms. Yep. And you can't just install software anytime you want. You just can't change things around whenever you want. So for example, if I'm coming to a conference and uh, I have an important presentation, I may not want to upgrade my operating system while I'm on the plane <laughs> yeah. on the way to the conference because yeah. if something goes wrong, I can't recover from it. Yeah. And similarly in business, we we can't just arbitrarily update things or, or change things. And so one of the things that a good roadmap does is it moves beyond just this release in this time frame and it provides the, the uh, understanding that uh, the product team has about why will the market care about this and why will the market absorb this the other part about this is that and and i talked about it yesterday here at the OOP conference in my tutorial is that the we expect that the product team has an understanding of how the market's going to evolve and how the um, features of the com- of the of the product are going to improve mm-hmm. well we also understand that uh, technology isn't static right yeah. technology is very dynamic yeah. it's a
0: very too too dynamic well, maybe well too
1: dynamic <laughs> something yeah i can't see that but the point is is that um, one of the people who were in my tutorial said, hey, how do I communicate to my product team that I've got to change my architecture because something changed underneath me? You know, I, I'm fine with the old database, but the database vendor changed versions and they mm-hmm. no longer support it. So I mm-hmm. have to change, right? Mm-hmm. And that happens all the time in our industry. Things yeah. change. Yeah. It's very, sometimes it feels very unstable. And so what I talk about is a well-constructed roadmap is going to give the technical architect an opportunity to communicate their understanding of how things are going to evolve and their understanding how things Mm -hmm. are gonna change. And by putting those into the same diagram and the same picture, you create an opportunity for the technical team and the business team to actually work together Mm -hmm. over time to meet the needs of the market. Uh, And and we find that this technique, which we call market-driven roadmaps, Mm -hmm. where the technical leader is in the room at the same time with the product person, creating that vision of the future, has this tremendous effect of helping link the two uh, teams together and helping them be productive together. Um, Now, the other part that you talked about was this notion of how do I deal with updates in the field? How do I deal with um, uh, imp- service in the field? And notice that that's a business decision that's affected by the architectural choices. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So the business team says, you know, Marcus, it's really important that we be able to update the software when it has a bug. Yeah. And so as an architect, you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, okay, what do I need to do technically to... Um, implement the business desire or goal of having it be updated in the field. Well, then you'd say, well, I have to componentize my system. Well, that's just good engineering. Yeah. But more importantly, I have to identify each component in such a way that not the system is versioned, but each component is versioned. Yeah. So I can say that you know the bug is in this module, version 2.2, and I'm going to go download this new particular module, version 2.3, and then it creates a configuration Uh, sophistication and then you have to do your testing infrastructure where you're testing the permutations so it's again to me that question is really it really gets to the heart of what I care about which is the business has a goal called uh, make it easy to update and the technical team can do that I mean we know how to do this we know the techniques to do this but it's intertwined with the business uh, you know where we have to go back to the business people and say well what if I'm building embedded software and you have to go to the business people and say um, okay, if you want me to uh, update the software in the field, then I need more money for the hardware because I need room yeah, in the hardware exactly. to take yeah. the new update. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to go figure out the new economic model because now it's not you know, $5 in material cost, but $7 in material costs, and You have to figure out if you can make money or if it's cheaper, um, maybe not for the environment, but it might be cheaper for your business to not yeah. make it upgradable and throw it out.
0: So, is this where the two terms, architecture and architecture, come into play? Yes. I mean, but most people know the term architecture, I guess, and that has, in most circles, like it has a bad connotation because it means basically drawing uh, PowerPoints in a way that right. people like the pictures, but that's not what you're talking about, I guess.
1: Not at all. So, uh, in the book, I, I introduce uh, two terms. Um, one is uh, architecture and the architect and the other is architecture with a T and the architect So most of the time I think of the technical architect as the architect and and if you think about what they're responsible for you can kind of see the distinction of the architect and the architect So a architect is responsible for the overall architectural style is it yeah. a layered system is it a pipeline is it a blackboard is it a kernel architecture. Yeah. Um, the architect has the similar kind of responsibility for how the market how you go to market, meaning how do you charge customers, how do you build them, how do you service them, how do you support them? These are all choices uh, that the marketing team makes about how they
0: want to work with the market so is the architect the same as what some people call the product manager?
1: Yes, in many cases and
0: in yeah. most cases, the product manager is the architect
1: right. okay mm-hmm. and and i 'll point out that. In our industry, we've learned that technical architects are special people, and they're rare, (laughs) and good ones are rare. And we've also learned that in product management, actually good product manager is a very rare person. There's many product managers who are ex-engineers who aren't particularly skilled at it because they want to design the system. And then the other problem with um, um, uh, product managers is they come with no technical background of any kind, right? So I got an MBA in finance and now I'm a product manager. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is a need in our particular industry uh, to have some unique skill. And in fact, that's one of the things that my company uh, is devoted to trying to help understand, which is... Product management of software technologies is different than product management of coffee and Coca-Cola and chairs. They're they're different skills. Why is that? Well, the fundamental reason is um, software is not sold. It is licensed. It is intellectual property. So when you bought your chair, you didn't have a license agreement. Or when you bought a pen.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's going to be but, there at one day.
1: Well, okay. but that's when the chair gets smart and it knows how, you, how to make itself <laughs> harder or soft yeah. based on whether you're tired or not. <laughs> right? Because it has sensors built in. And some software person, right? Because software is really yeah. cool. Some software person wrote the software to make the chair adjustable. Yeah. But right now, like, I'm holding a pen in our interview. And this pen was bought. Yeah. It's, I own it. Right. I physically own this. I could I could sell it to you yeah. without restrictions. True. You cannot do that with software. And so one of the most fundamental distinctions between software as a product versus any other kind of product is the notion of intellectual property and licensing mm-hmm. and how the license terms both affect the software, affect the technical team, and affect how the market uh, evolves.
0: But But also I guess there is like, Um, more like technical reasons why software is different from from chairs because um, i mean people always say that chairs and many other things are governed by all kinds of physical chemical and biological laws absolutely which you can't negotiate away in software at least people think it's different
1: well and and in many ways it is Um, and one of the things that changes about software is that because the hardware continues to improve so rapidly. Hmm. We can actually do things now in software that we couldn't conceive uh, of, mostly yeah. because of algorithmic complexity.
0: And of course, I <laughs> <turned> <laughs> you forgot to my turn phone. off your phone. So just to to make sure, this is me, not Luke. So he probably <laughs> turned his phone off.
1: <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, the whole and, and 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 I can't I can't disagree. Right? The the whole not- notion of physicality of of you know and uh, for example the software it's interesting software bits don't degrade mm-hmm. right they, they last forever where chairs and physical objects degrade yeah but the relevancy of the bits degrades because
0: of yeah. of of changing in the environment and information half that's a good point like actually that. so the value of the software degrades too it's it not does. that it mechanically fades away but its usefulness its usefulness yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. i mean yeah.
0: how many of us find
1: you usefulness out of
0: uh, dos 3.1 anymore or cpm or, or an old operating actually, system actually i just recently found <laughs> a, a, an, an emulator for for the amstrad <laughs> computers back then yeah. with with all the games so i right, found right, that right, useful wait right, wait right. <laughs> yeah of course but um Mm, that's that's a good view. I didn't I didn't think about that yet. So that so software actually ages in the same sense as hardware products age. Just that it's not physically deteriorating. That's right. And so it confuses people. Like so, software people when we say that
1: we actually we're comfortable with it. We go, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Whereas non technical people go, I don't understand. It's not wearing out. Help me understand.
0: Yeah. So um, uh, one thing that I'd um, like to uh, talk about a little bit, which is a bit beyond. I think, beyond what you describe in the book, is product lines. How is product line development different in that sense? Um, how is a product that's part of a product line, is there different things we, we with regards to the process and roadmap? Uh, first off, I am very excited about the work on software
1: product lines. I think it's uh, some of the best work that's ever come out of uh the software engineering institute i'm very excited about it yeah i i really and i know that in other places around the world product lines are becoming um more prominent um i do think that there are some differences about product lines because product lines are fundamentally about an architecture that was created with a business purpose in mind and that's that's different than architectures that were created with a indirect business purpose in mind so for example um, we might talk about scalable transaction processing architectures. And yes, the business purpose was scalability, whereas in, uh, in a product line architecture, you're typically analyzing the product line relative to a set of market segments to create that investment right up front. So I, I think all of the no- normal practices that a product manager does and many of the practices that an architect does are appropriate I think they get extended and emphasized in a product line architecture.
0: It's somehow funny. I've been discussing this product line stuff with with several people recently uh, because it's also, for me, it's very interesting. And um, maybe even we recorded this in one of the previous podcasts on product lines. I don't know. Anyway, so (laughs) Michael Kirche once said that when he looks at this product line stuff, most of this stuff is just software engineering done right. So it's not necessarily specific to product lines. It's just that those practices and best practices become even more important if you do product uh, lines
1: yeah and i've had that tr- i've had that point of view too because i've read the 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 seminal book software product yeah. lines and uh and i read it and i'm like well i've done that i mean yeah. that's how i've done systems in the past yeah. i think the difference is in the the expected output of a software product line mm. is that you get multiple instantiations relative to market segments and domains, whereas software engineering done right is still typically done for one yeah. particular Instantiation or one particular domain, and yeah. I think that's a worthy distinction.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, there is this focus on on extendability and of the ability of explicitly manage variations and 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 blah blah blah. But but many of the things that people talk about in product lines would also be useful in non-product line embedded right. products. Right. Yeah.
1: And, and notice that notice that what we're really distinguishing is the input versus the output. Right. The input to the well-designed architecture is the same as the input to the well-designed product line. I want to achieve this goal. It's the output that's different. The output of a well-designed single architecture is just a single architecture or a single instantiation of the system. The output of a software product line is multiple instantiations of that system in controlled ways with different price performance or different structural characteristics. But the other thing thing that I've been finding as I've worked with um, companies who are doing software product lines is that uh, people who have built multi-platform software and people who have built uh, software that, goes, um, uh, that that is um, highly internationalized mm-hmm. tend to have an advantage in thinking about uh, product lines because yeah. they're used to the notion of, I want to have this core that is expressed in different platforms yeah. or I want to have this core that's expressed in different user segments or populations. Yeah. And so those people naturally are employing the, pra- the good practices of software engineering yeah. and they yeah. seem to be adopting product lines faster.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about uh, uh, some of the aspects that are important to consider when uh, discussing about the influences of uh, business aspects on software technology.
1: So let's take let's
0: take one of my uh,
1: favorites, um, technology and licensing. It's virtually impossible to build a product today on your own. Mm-hmm. You're you're building on an operating system. Yeah, I mean the embedded guys sometimes can do it on their own, but even embedded teams will often use embedded operating Absolutely. systems. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. Again, going back to this notion of software isn't sold, it's licensed. Everything that you're building on has a license that governs its terms of use. Mm -hmm. And so as an architect, you're not only making technical choices about uh, the performance of the component or its functionality. You have to start being aware of the license agreement. And you have to say, I want to bring in this component, and by using this component... I get this advantage, but I have to understand the terms and conditions of the use of that component. And I'll give you a concrete example. Some years ago, uh, we were brought in to work with a a client who wanted to build uh, software as a service, an ASP. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to build it on a particular vendor's uh, J2EE container. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, the vendor license for the J2EE container was different when it was hosted versus when, (laughs) when it was deployed on site mm-hmm. and the economics of the license for hosting was untenable it was too expensive to host it using their mm-hmm. container license so we had to pick a different container mm-hmm. and in the process yes the, theoretically theoretically j2e containers are completely portable yeah yeah, Practically, we know that. Yeah, 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 they're not right yep. so then we had to spend about two months of development cost hmm rewriting the whole thing to get into the other, to get to an open source J2E container. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of issue that technology licensing can come into play. And of course, with open source, uh, you know, people uh, who don't understand open source licensing or the issues of open source licensing can make... um, mistakes even they may not be trying to make do the wrong thing, but they may make a mistake because they don't understand the license terms.
0: Yeah, and, and that's something I mean I'm using quite a lot of open source software. I'm also producing open source software in the open architecture team. And when we became part of the Eclipse platform, so we moved from, you know, just another open source project on SourceForge to becoming part of the Eclipse platform or the Eclipse project. And we had to do quite some, I think the term is due diligence, finding mm-hmm. out what uh, what kind of libraries we we're using and uh, making sure that we don't use anything that is, from a licensing perspective, unclear. And we didn't care about that before. I mean, you know, it's open source, just use it. Yeah, just Don't use care. it. Well, guess what, and now th- you care. <laughs> <But> yeah, <laughs> absolutely,
1: we had to. Yeah, you had to. It's uh, and, tough. And so, and so that's a, that's an important consideration, I think, of any uh, architect. They, they have to know these things. And what's interesting is that um, you might say, oh, no, 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 Luke, uh, you know, the business team should know that. Well, the reality is, is the business team can't, understand the meaning of the term yeah. so they can walk up to you and they can say hey this license says that I'm not supposed to um, uh, expose the API well what do they know about exposing APIs yeah. and you as a technical person say well what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap the API yeah. well a lawyer who's smart in both would say well wrapping an API is similar to exposing it because you're not doing any value added work yeah. on top of it yeah. And dah, 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 dah. <laughs> so, so the technical yeah. people really do have a responsibility to understand a little bit about yeah. this um, next one w- that that uh, we like to talk about is uh, portability. There's uh, portability is a really funny thing, right? Because a lot of developers care about their
0: skill in writing portable code. Yeah, I was about to mention that.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's like I know how to write portable
0: code, and it's a rare skill. And that's true. A- and let's add another indirection layer so we can exchange yeah, a database yeah, and whatever. Yeah, we can do the more
1: database, yeah. you know. And and so what what I find is that. Um, portability is not a good choice when developers think it's cool or when early customers in the early phases of a product growth say well I've got different needs and I want you to support them what what you really want to do is in a product team you want to evaluate the notion of portability based on market share it's it's the economics yeah. how much does it take me to uh, write the portable code and does it make sense for me to support that other platform? Now, yeah. what's interesting is that I, I, I explicitly said write that code. And hopefully your listeners are saying, no, no, no. It's more money than just writing the code. And it mm-hmm. is. You've got to have Testing. QA teams. Yeah. You've got to have support teams. Your sales team might have to have, you know, you know. let's say you're selling enterprise software and you're selling it on different uh, platforms, like a Mac platform and a Windows platform and a Solaris platform. Well, does your sales team have to be trained in all platforms? Mm-hmm. And what about the differences in platforms, et cetera, et cetera? So I, um, I understand portable systems development. I have managed teams doing portable development. I've created portable products.
0: More often than not, though, I think that portability is overrated. Yes, I would agree. Because especially, for example, on the database side, I mean, if you're developing real products that people can deploy on their database, then it's different. But typically also in, in IT projects, I mean, your customer will most likely never, ever change the database because it's too expensive. to have e- these typical, you know, lifelong licenses with Oracle.
1: Well, it's not only that it's too expensive. So let's say that you're a company that has a, a, a big investment in Oracle. Mm-hmm. And... It's not the data that's the expense in any system, right? It's the humans, right? So it's not just the fact that you've got this big licensing agreement with Oracle. It's that all your DBAs know Oracle, and they know the ins and outs of Oracle, and they're comfortable with Oracle. Not that Oracle's perfect or it's terrible. It's just that they understand how to make Oracle work. So then you walk up to them and say, well, I want you to use this new thing because it's cheaper. And they're thinking... But I've got to retrain everything I've learned in my yeah. career, and yeah. what we often, what I've often seen is that when people make those kinds of changes, the people change. Yeah. They go find a job where they can use Oracle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because I know Oracle.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's especially true for databases. There is a especially lot of know-how true. in databases. There's
1: a lot of skill, right? There's a lot of skill. Yeah. Right? yeah. A of skill.
0: yeah. So um, I think we talked already about a little bit about the deployment stuff, uh, updateability and things. So, uh, do you want to add on that? Well, when I talk about deployment, one of the things that I uh, write about
1: is the notion of um, people put a big distinction in the world right now between if it's hosted at the customer site or mm-hmm. is it hosted in a data center? Yep. And some people call those application service providers in Silicon Valley. The cool term is software as a service. Yep. You know, you run it like Salesforce.com. Yep. When you're when you're talking about the the architecture of a product. I think in general, the architecture of deployment should be independent of the architecture of the business functionality, Mm -hmm. meaning I shouldn't bake in assumptions about how I've deployed and yet people did that all the time. I mean, what they found for example in the early days of hosting software was that they they the software was inadvertently designed to be one customer on one database. Oh yeah. And then we had to learn how to redesign database tables to have what's called multi-tenancy. Yeah. So that's one issue, right? And yep. so when you really approach it from a from a fresh perspective, what you want to say is I have to expect in the modern world mm-hmm. that my software is going to be flexibly deployed. Some customers are going to want to put it on site. Some customers might want me to host it or I might want a third party to host it. And therefore, I'm going to make choices in my architecture so that they, it can be flexibly deployed. And and again, to your comment earlier about, well, product line architectures are just really fundamentally good architecture design. I think deployment choices are fundamentally uh, good uh, design choices. Now, I want to add one thing that I didn't write about in the book that is an important distinction. There are capabilities that you can create for your customers when your software is hosted that are different than when it's deployed on site. I'll give you a concrete example. Yeah, yeah. Let's say I'm doing a, um, a data acquisition system for um, uh, uh, supermarket HVAC controls. So I've mm-hmm. got supermarkets in, in, and I'm managing the temperatures and, and the uh, thermometers and the so lighting systems. HVAC HVIC stands for uh, Heat, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Air air conditioning. Yeah. So I've got the system that does that. Now, if I put the software at my customer's site, they can look at things like trends and they can understand how the weather impacts their energy mm-hmm. usage. But what they can't determine is how their store is doing relative to other stores from other companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I host it, I can aggregate the data and then I can do what's called syndication or syndicated data analysis. And I can get performance statistics Mm -hmm. about how I'm doing relative to other people. Mm -hmm. So what I try to get the business team to first think about before I talk to the architectures is I say, are there unique services or information that you can provide to your market when you host? And Mm -hmm. if the answer is yes, I can get something unique. Well then it's a little bit more compelling to go hosting because you're providing a, better business value and you're not making the choice based on architecture because most good architects once they understand that hosting is a requirement or flexible deployment is a requirement they say oh well i'm going to design my system to be multi-tenant and then here's what i need to do to be multi-tenant and you were you know then you add the security of the database and things like that but but the real point is you got to bring it first to the business value what what am i offering yeah to the market that's different when I host it versus when I don't host it. Wisdom of the crowd, right? That's, that's right. Uh, that, that stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, and of course, sometimes the crowd is idiots, so
0: <laughs> so you don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, before we talk a little bit about innovation and product innovation, I'd like to touch briefly on, on one thing that I personally find quite uh, important, and that is branding. Ah. Um, I mean, I've... I haven't ever really done product, except maybe the podcast. I mean, in some sense, the podcast Software Engineering Radio is a kind of product. Oh, um, it is a product. It is a product. Is a people, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm wearing this T-shirt that does some advertising. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, so It's a brand. I, yeah, you have a logo, you have a name, you have a website, you have, a, you know, a way of doing the episode. So you're really building a brand in some sense. And so um, I think you, you'll certainly have some th- thoughts about that. I do. Um,
1: so, so in the book, I talk about brand and brand elements for software architectures. Um, again, this is one of those areas that does distinguish a product from an IT project. Uh, yes, an IT exactly. project doesn't right. have a lot yes. of need for branding. Yep. But, but uh, it's really funny because when you, when you drill into the um, details, you find that brand issues surface in many funny ways. Like, for example, if I'm installing software on my laptop, I usually put it by convention in Windows in C program files. Mm-hmm. But now I have a question. Do I put the name of the company... As the directory with the name of the product. Mm -hmm. Do I put the name of the product? Do I put the version of the product I'm installing into the directory structure? Similarly, when I'm uh, doing software, let's say I'm running software as a service. And I put my company's logo out there. What if my company is using it internally with their users? Maybe they want to see their logo. Mm -hmm. And now I have to define what are the standards of the graphic and how do I upload it and how do I change it and who can upload it and who can change it. So branding and and, uh, brand elements are very important things uh, that, that we need to understand in products. And the architect needs to be in a, have an awareness of it so that they're using them properly and ma- making the right choices
0: for changeability and extensibility
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it's also important whether you try to put your company name in the foreground or your product name that's for right. example. Uh, oh no. in some cases, the company name is the same name as as the product name. Google, Skype. I mean, Google has other stuff than its search engine, but the the search engine is Google. That's so right. I think it's also important to make this distinction: whether you want to make your company a well-known entity or whether you're really like building a product which which has a happens yeah, yeah which happens well, to be yeah. developed by a company. And this is this is all the marketing side of things.
1: For example, um, you know, it, it gets funny when companies acquire companies. So yes. for example. Um, semantic acquired norton antivirus Mm -hmm. well the norton brand was so strong that they've never thrown it away and we still refer to it as norton antivirus even though technically it's semantics norton antivirus (laughs) um you know we we call and it's sometimes we say um we we tend to say um microsoft word but we tend to say excel we don't say microsoft excel
0: True, yeah. yeah so it's, now so that I think about it.
1: When you think about how people talk and yeah. the language they choose, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting to see yeah. when is it the company, like you said, is mm-hmm. it company product or is it product?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, let's uh, look a little bit about um, um, this whole business of, of innovation um, and, and to some extent also requirements gathering, I guess, because um, as we said, we talked about that a little bit in the preparation of this episode and and i think coming up with a product idea is typically something very creative there isn't much of a process involved and then as you explained you release uh, like version 1 and you have a couple of things on your backlog that you wanted to be in 1.0 but it didn't get in there because of time to market considerations. so version 2 is also typically simple you just add all the stuff you always wanted to add but now what do you do next how do you yeah. how do you communicate with your users or how do you do that's this? right so
1: so having been in several startups they they typically have the same structure as you outlined right some some really creative person says oh if i have i see this problem and this need and i'm going to write some software to go go fix that problem and they may have be solving their own problem Mm -hmm. or they may have done some market research or some testing or whatever to to figure out that it was worth doing but when you get into release two and you get into release three you start to say well what do i do next how do I keep my innovation pipeline flowing? And so what I found was that um, (laughs) being a good engineer, I just would walk up to my customers and say, hey, what do you want? (laughs) And of course that doesn't work. So then I went to the field of usability. It doesn't work. Why? Well, people don't know what they want. Uh, I mean, the the standard, Mm, you know, when you ask someone what they want, they don't really know. Mm. They kind of can tell you what they don't like, but they kind of can't tell you what they like. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, uh, when you're dating, right? It's easy to see someone that you don't like, but it's not always (laughs) hard to predict what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. (laughs) We're discriminators as as humans, right? The brain is designed to discriminate. So, um, So then I moved into the field of usability and I read all about usability and I learned about prototyping, and I thought, wow, prototyping, that makes it better, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, through paper and pencil sketching interfaces, you can show them interfaces, and you can get rapid feedback, and yeah. there's lots of good work in that field, and uh, it's very important to, um, to do prototyping. Mm-hmm. But I found that prototyping didn't actually help me understand the motivating need of the customer. It helped me understand whether a customer found my idea acceptable, but mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily solve the problem. Yep. So I started playing around over about 10 years with different games and different techniques. Uh-huh. And what I found was that when you let people do activities, you can get much richer understanding of what they're trying to accomplish and the problems they're facing. So after about 10 years of doing this, I wrote a book called Innovation Games, which was just published. And in Innovation Games, I describe 12 ways to work with your customers through activities or games that give you insight into deep needs and deep understanding of what they want. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal of the book is to provide readily accessible tools to software people or technical people because we're frankly not trained to talk with customers right marketing people they they're giving classes on this engineers are giving classes in you know uh algorithmic complexity (laughs) not a very good way to learn how to talk with a customer right (laughs) Right? so so the goal of the book is to outline in very clear very simple steps here's how you plan the event Here's how you bring customers in, here's what you do, here's -hmm. how you post-process the results, and here's how you use them in your product uh, planning purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And we found that these games are very, very successful. Uh, They've been used by lots and lots of different companies. Um, uh, They've helped improve products. Mm -hmm. They've helped product strategy. They've even created new product lines and product offerings at companies based on the uh, ideas and the innovations that occur mm-hmm. out of the game, can you give
0: us like two or three examples of such games? So we get a
1: feeling? absolutely so uh, one game is called buy a feature and it's helped it's used to help understand customers' priorities of features yeah. so let's take a premise that um, a development team is a finite resource yes, usually usually, <laughs> so that means you don't have you don't have the ability to do everything you want mm-hmm. so what product managers typically do is they go out and talk with customer one and get what their needs are and they get then they talk with customer two and they get their needs and they keep this pairwise conversation. They get a bunch of customer needs and then they sort through it. What buy a feature does is it says, let's bring all the customers into the room. Let's price the features and give them play money. Mm -hmm. And the amount of money that we give them isn't enough to buy all the features Mm -hmm. because development is a limited resource. And let's watch... Who negotiates with whom to buy what? So let's say there's six customers at the table, and I each gave them $10, and one of the features is $40, and one feature is $30, and one feature is $20. Eventually, they're going to start running out of money. Mm-hmm. And to get a feature, they have to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And what you're watching as the developer in the room is you're watching, well, who collaborates with whom? And you find that people will collaborate to buy what they want, and the more that they collaborate, the more important that feature is to the market.
0: But that, of course, only works if you can identify your customers or at least a subset. If you have the typical like shrink-wrapped stuff, you can't obviously get all your customers. Well, you, you can get, get a get statistical sample. Yeah, you yeah, can do yeah, a statistical yeah, sample. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's by a feature. That's one game. Another game is... Um, Uh, what would be give them a hot tub so give them a hot tub is the use of outrageous features to determine what is called the product boundary so let's go back to Mm -hmm. product management and technical architecture product management is making choices about what's in and out of the product similarly the technical architect makes choices about the product boundary they Mm -hmm. say this is in my product or this is something I'm gonna license in right these are boundary questions so, what Give Them a Hot Dub does is it uses outrageous features to determine what features customers want. And so, what happens is is when you're presented with an outrageous idea, your brain needs to protect itself. So, your brain will say, well, that's just stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, fine. Or the brain will say, I didn't even hear it. Like, I ignored the stimulus in the environment because it's too weird. Yeah. But the magic occurs when we give you an outrageous feature and then your brain says, I've got to make sense of it because I've got to resolve cognitive dissonance. So an outrageous idea induces cognitive dissonance and so your brain transforms it into something that makes sense. And it's that transformation process that gives you insight into the kind of the features that your customers really want in So what you're the saying
0: product. is you, you're proposing nonsense and the customer says, yeah, you know, that's nonsense. But uh, what I really need is like this and that.
1: Exactly correct. And it sounds like it doesn't work, <laughs> but it actually works very well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, psychological research that talks about how we respond to stimulus that is uh, uh, nonsense. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we ignore it. We just so, say, "Oh, it's nonsense," and you move on. But sometimes we do exactly what you did. You say, "Well, it's really kind of nonsense," but you know what? I really what this would make sense to me, and it's yeah. the would make sense to me. That's that creates uh, interesting and, and power and excitement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another game is actually uh, based on the field of ethnographic observation. And ethnographic observation is going out in the field and working with customers, mm-hmm. and it's it, we call it the apprentice, um, not unlike the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if many software people have a term called dog fooding, and eat dog, your own dog food, eat your own dog yeah. food. So eat your own dog food is using your own software. Yeah. The problem is that most software teams can't really use their own software yes. because they're not the people. Yeah using the
0: work. That's why I always say that you, that you can't necessarily adopt the practices of the people who develop Eclipse. They're always considered as, oh, this is a great team. They built this wonderful, stable, scalable platform and they do dogfooding all the time. But you can, of course, only do this if you develop development tools.
1: That's right. So it's a great idea but it falls apart. Yeah. So what we do with the same concept is we, we actually put developers at our customer site and we have them use the software Mm -hmm. with the customer as a guide Mm -hmm. so you can't dog food like for example if you're a software developer working on retail cash registers like you're working on software that makes the cash register run chances are you're a software developer you're not a cashier at a a, a store but what we will do with customers is we'll actually put the developer at a store that has their cash register and we'll have them be a cash register operator for say an hour or two and yeah. then the cash register expert will say, yeah. well, see, this is how it works. And by having that feeling of how yeah. it's really working or yeah. not working gives the developer first uh, 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 empathy. Yeah. right? It creates empathy for the customer, empathy for the experience, and it helps them understand, uh, wow, when I'm building software, this is the kind of person
0: that cares about it and this is what they have yeah. to do to do their job. And it, it also really helps to understand the domain. I've, I've once been working for a company who builds these huge container terminals in Mm -hmm. in Hamburg, Mm port, And uh, of course, since I'm an engineer, I of course liked, you know, to see these big things. So the plan was to actually go there, go on top of such a crane, and really look at what's happening and how these container transport things, you know, drive around and how this all works, to get a better understanding of what the domain is for which we're trying to build this, you know, this like state machine that controls the, the crane or whatever.
1: Right, because the state machine that controls a crane is very abstract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and there's no emotion and there's no yes, feeling, exactly. Right? And, yeah. and engineers do much better when they have that personal yes. uh, connection yes. into
0: what customers are doing. Yeah, especially if it's in some sense cool.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, everything <laughs> has its everything has a sense of coolness to yeah, it.
0: Yeah. Bang. Banking for me it doesn't. Yeah, banking but. doesn't for you, but, well, for bankers it does. Yeah, for bankers, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, but uh, although you 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 talk about this stuff in the context of innovation and product development, it could also be considered as a way of doing requirements engineering. Oh, absolutely. really well, engineering, but well, gathering. no, no.
1: Let's let's take a step back. Okay. So so. Uh, so the innovation games are technically a form of market research and yeah. it's called qualitative market research. Mm-hmm. And what, my, what I believe is that requirements gathering is just another form of market research. And because I define market research as any activity that you undertake to better understand your customer. Mm. So, if you're Mm. undertaking an activity that is working with people or trying to understand them better, to me, that's a form of market research. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what requirements gathering is. How do I understand your needs to create better software Well, I do requirements gathering? And the whole field of requirements gathering, there's many wonderful techniques uh, that work. Uh, Unfortunately, some of them are pretty dry and not very fun. So, the the real point about, the other point about innovation games is that there's an element of fun to all of the games. Yeah. Many of the games result in, in uh, people generating uh, pictures and artwork that mm. you can take back to the rest of the team yeah. and, and share with them and say, look, this is what a customer said. Yeah. And this is, this is what they meant when they said yeah. it. And, and instead of seeing you know some very boring 12-point you know, Times Roman font in a Word document, they can actually see customer handwriting. Mm. And they can see a customer generating exactly what they were looking for yeah
0: yeah yeah. and i really think uh, it's critical that you involve groups of people so you have this element of discussion because if you just go to a customer and say hey tell me what you want sketch it then they either won't be able to do it or they will sketch yeah the bathtub right that's completely stupid stuff that are either unrealistic or of which they think they need but they don't need it so you have to have this interactivity where people talk to each other and kind of negotiate the features and,
1: and you know what's fun about this is that is that it actually doesn't have to be a big deal meaning many companies have natural opportunities to talk with customers. They have user groups. Yeah, yeah, they have yes. annual conferences. Yeah. And what's funny about this is that, um, and I'm going to talk about this in my keynote later today at the OOP, but the the only thing that's holding back developers from attending those events is they don't often ask. Hmm. Meaning yeah. if yeah, there's yeah. a user group meeting and you're a developer, say, hey, could I go to the user group meeting yeah. and, and just Hang out with customers and talk with them. And then there's some guidelines as a developer, right? You shouldn't make promises because it's not your job and you shouldn't, you know, say things are bad or good. You know, don't commiserate. (laughs) You know, don't say, oh, I'm going to fix that bug for you because you may not fix that bug. So once you learn a couple of light guidelines of how to talk, you can participate in those events and Mm -hmm. and get access to it. But you kind of got to ask that question. Yeah, Because they're not going to come ask you and they're not going to go, you know, they're not going to, the marketing team isn't going to go over into engineering and say, hey, <laughs> engineers, come on out to the user event. Yeah. But they would love to have you there.
0: And, and users would probably be happy if they were were able to talk to like real experts and not, you know, just marketing people.
1: That's right. They, so it's entirely acceptable when a customer walks up to you and says, could you tell me a little bit more about why it works this way? Yeah. And then you can say, well, here's what we were thinking. And here's how, and, and the customer goes, oh, Oh, okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it's very non threatening.
0: Yeah. I think that's more or less all I had in mind. Do you want to like, add any, as I say, and as I copied from other podcasts, any pearls of wisdom that you want to leave on this podcast? Any pearls <laughs> of wisdom? Um, I would simply summarize the way we
1: started, which is business and technology are intertwined, mm-hmm. they're not distinct. And the choices that technical people make influence the business and the choices that the business makes influence the technical people. And understanding that interaction creates better products and better architectures.
0: Okay, so thanks, Luke, for being on the show, and um, I'll let you know once we posted it. Thank you very much. thanks for listening to software engineering radio if you want to get more information about software engineering radio or if you want to give us feedback please go to our website at se-radio.net you can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net although we prefer entries in our comment system on the website so other people can see what you think software engineering radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music as well as Libsyn for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under a Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.